0: I'm a research associate at TORCH, the Oxford Research Centre in the Humanities at the University of Oxford, and a freelance writer and recovery coach. Welcome to the first episode of this new podcast, Textual Therapies, which explores the connections between all kinds of texts and all kinds of good and ill health, what we know, what we don't know, and what we think we know but may need to rethink. For this episode, I took advantage of happening to meet her over lunch at the 2018 International Health Humanities Consortium Conference at Stanford to chat to Lisa Saffron, who is Director of the Master of Public Health Program at the University of Missouri and a writer of both fiction and non-fiction. We talk about what exactly is involved in bringing narrative into public health, why it matters, and what kind of questions it might help us answer in the future. My name
1: is Lisa Saffron and I'm the director of the Master of Public Health program at the University of Missouri. I'm also a writer. I have a Masters of Fine Arts in fiction writing and I write personal essays, creative nonfiction, and I published a novel and some stories. I started working in public health first, so my impulse was, you know, community activism, social change, uh, community health, and then became interested in creative writing and went back to school to get a Master's of Fine Arts and was living sort of conducting kind of parallel lives where I was doing my creative work on the one hand and my public health work on the other hand. But when I really became involved in administering a graduate program and in teaching public health students, it started to really become clear that there were things in the practice of creative work that would be useful for people working in public health. And an example is a colleague of mine was having her capstone public health students read about a low-income housing community in Chicago and thinking about an intervention to uh, reduce smoking. And by the time a graduate student has gone through a public health program, they've thought a lot about social context in health. It's really what we do. It's what we teach. But at the very end of the program, students were asked what would you do to intervene and reduce rates of smoking? And a lot of them said, well, we should just teach the women who live there not to smoke. And my colleagues said, well, I don't understand what's missing. Why can't our students imagine the lives of the women and what that's like? And I thought, well, that's the work that a creative writer does all the time, is imagine other people's lives in really granular detail, like not just in the abstract. And so I began with an intervention that was a creative writing intervention that required that deep imagination. And that kind of was my path into the health humanities and really thinking about all the work that other people are doing in creativity and reflection and how humanities might work differently in public health and medicine and how it might work similar and what are the needs. And so very quickly, those two fields converged. My teaching and research is about what does creative work allow us? How does it allow us to do the work of public health more ethically and more effectively and more humanly and humanely?
0: And you just referred to a distinction there between medicine and and public health. Do you Mm -hmm. think that the role and the importance of this type, this way of working is is either more or less important in one or the other or harder or easier to, to make the case for?
1: Well, I think I spend a lot of my time making the case. I think it's, it's not a hard case to make, but it's not being made very often about public health. Um, and I think in part it's because at, most people unfortunately i've had an experience with uh, either being a doctor who feels burned out and you know is struggling with empathy or having had a clinical encounter where the clinician doesn't seem as empathetic i mean that's not a mystery people are like oh right doctors and empathy that really is needed but empathy the lack of empathy is just as important if you're developing social policy and working with communities and Particularly, you often get situations where people who work in public health come from one community, a community of privilege, and they're working in a community that is marginalized and less privileged. And so empathy looks different, but it's just as necessary. And so in public health, empathy, the lack of empathy looks often like making assumptions about people's behavior. And, you know, the behavior, an assumption that might look like, well, if this person knew how bad this was, they would stop doing this thing. So I think it can be harder to make a case, but it can be very, very powerful once people get it. And also self-reflection, because people in public health are already very focused on social change, for example. You know, they often think, well, I've already, you know, I'm already kind of thinking about things like race and power and but you know obviously we don't always think about them in a way that's fully informed by all the voices and so again it can be really powerful when you introduce this humanities approach.
0: In some of your academic writing, which I've just started to explore, you talk about one of the potential cases against using narrative Mm -hmm. forms in this area, which is the danger of Mm over-particularising. And, um, you know, maybe the best stories are the ones that are actually not very typical and they mislead us by making us focus on specifics that aren't actually pertinent. Mm -hmm. How do you try to encourage people to strike the right balance between generality and specificity or do you ignore that and do something else?
1: Oh, we don't ignore it at all. It's actually really central. So I teach a course storytelling in public health and policy and we spend a lot of time talking about stories in general but then also talking about, well, what is a true public health story? What's the special sauce that public health brings? And one of the the special sauces is the ability to look at statistical and population evidence and say, you know, is this representative? And to choose artfully, you know, which cases you focus on so that you focus on cases and you bring to life what is reflected in the research. And, and you know, journalism is different. Everybody, different disciplines have a different approach. But public health, I think that the issue of representativeness is a really big, you at least have to ask the question and you at least have to know what the literature tells you. So I often say, you know, if downtown in my town, if somebody experiences a carjacking and the person that carjacks them is dressed as a clown, that's news. And your reporters are going to be on the scene. And they should be. But a public health person at some point in telling that story has to ask, is that a thing? That You know, carjacking clowns? Like, what is this story? If I'm going to tell the story what's the story about? Is it about clowns? Is it about carjacking? Is it about, you know, so we always kind of bring that up. And is that a thing is sort of shorthand
0: for what does the literature say? Okay, so you've you've got a whole load of narratives that have been (laughs) generated and it's up to you now to decide which ones are representative and which are not. Obviously, that process must be subjective to some extent. How confident can you be that the one that you select is able to speak? Or, the rest, or, well, or do you not present it in those terms? No, no, again,
1: all of those things I think you have to put under a microscope. So speak for what? You know, you always have to be asking, what's the story about? Is this a story about a lack of education, about smoking? Is this a story about social context? Is this a story about race? Is this a story about access? And even deciding what the story is about is a subjective decision. And then, of course, once you decide what the story is about, you choose not just cases, but evidentiary support based on what the story is about. I think one of the key components to teaching storytelling in public health is to identify all of those choice moments and then introduce frameworks for, well, how do you ask, how true is this, how subjective it is? So, what would this story be about from a different point of view? And how would it call for different evidence in a different case? And so part of that is other voices. You know, I think this is a story about X. I'll ask somebody else. What would you think this is a story about to see what I'm missing?
0: One of the examples that you gave in the 2014 paper, I forget the title now, mm-hmm. which I've just been reading, is a woman who died of a failed abortion who had wanted to become... One of the reasons she didn't have Oh, right, have the, the
1: Togo example. Uh-huh.
0: Yeah, and she'd wanted to become a seamstress, and she'd had a sewing machine. And mm-hmm. you said that whoever was presenting the narrative mm-hmm. gave a very detailed description of mm-hmm. the sewing machine. And that made me wonder about what it is that's doing the cognitive work there, or what, mm-hmm. what is it that's, that's so salient. Because I, I've now remembered the sewing machine yeah, thing, even yeah. though you know, the rest of the, the details uh-huh. kind of escaped me can those kind of very salient but not necessarily crucial details play an important role sometimes, you think? And how does that relate to more general principles about how we create narrative?
1: Well, salient and crucial, you know, I mean, one of the things that I think overwhelm my students at the very beginning of the course is there's so many moving parts, you know, because salient and crucial is another set of choices. And so it depends on salient for what and crucial for what. So the objective is to both engage your reader emotionally so that they feel and picture the scene or the moment or the detail vividly and concretely because that's how narratives engage us but then of course you don't want detail that's extraneous and i had a writing teacher i studied creative writing in the iowa writers workshop and The director of the workshop at the time was a man named Frank Conroy, and he's sort of a renowned writing teacher, and he's since passed. But he used to talk about fiction writing, but it's true of nonfiction. It's true of any kind of narrative, I believe, that you're clearing a path to the top of the mountain, and all of the details that you set down on the road are things that your reader is going to pick up and put in their backpack. And so you have to be really deliberate, and you have to have enough detail. They have to have something in their backpack. But if you get to the top of the mountain and you've asked them to carry a VW bus and there's no reason for that, then they're really mad. So yeah, you select the best details are the details that both mean something and produce that sense of being really engaged in this. It's a real person and a real history and a real that, you know, are kind of those keys. So you're as a, writer and storyteller you're always looking for those details and sometimes they're things that people say and sometimes they're things that they do or even yeah something they owned that was meaningful. There's another writer I think her name is Catherine Schultz that in an interview I heard her saying you're, you're always kind of writing 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 listening for that bell like when the bell rings like oh that's the, that thing accumulates power But again, they're choices. And so if you choose a detail, you can choose details that that reinforce stereotypes. You can choose details that send people down the wrong path. The degree of selection, it's a big responsibility. And so then you do have an obligation, especially if you're trying to tell true stories about things that matter and often about other people. It's not enough just to wing it. You really have to think about it. And that's where the health humanities part comes in. Because that's where it has to be a process of self-reflection. Because often in public health, if you get good at storytelling, but you don't reflect, then it really is more like advertising or it's more like, you know, you could be perpetuating stories that harm people.
0: Yeah, I was struck in the workshop which you ran and I took part in (laughs) by how easy the stereotypes are to fall into. And the fact that one never quite knows Am I just replacing one stereotype with another? Like I'm trying really hard to fight this, but but still I don't know how to get beyond them. How do you do that?
1: (laughs) Well, so the workshop that I led that you were in, um, because it's about imagining a character, and it is so focused on the writer and the imaginer, the real purpose of that is not to produce the description of the character. So it's really just to get you to that point where you say, wow, these are really reflexive and automatic stereotypes, or how do you do that? And then that's the moment where you begin learning how you do it. So there are ways, I think, and of course, you're always judged in the end by what people think. You know, somebody might say you did it terribly in the end, even with all your efforts. But often, I think the mistake and why that kind of exercise is so useful is people launch right in into the description without ever having done a reflection, and so if you can at least reflect and say, wow, the language that I've learned to talk about people like this that aren't like me may be suspect initially. So let me think harder about, and then maybe at some point ask people about, how does that description sit with you? And I think you know the other thing about storytelling, and you were talking about the salient detail and the sewing machine in that example, is that public health storytelling is also about the interplay between population data, and you are talking about representativeness and understanding that things happen in patterns to groups of people and understanding why, and then the interplay between that information, which is super useful and wise, helps us understand the world, and how individuals are unique within communities is that you are not just the sum of all of those determinants. And so going back and forth, and so you know, kind of conversely, sort of a paradox that sometimes if you pick the right case and you're, you have it in the right context, getting more specific about a person makes you less likely to stereotype because people in their specificity are not caricatures. They're individuals. So if you, if you can find that thing that like makes Emily really Emily, then you know you're moving away from stereotypes.
0: Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. I wonder going back to the sewing machine again, how much it has to be narrative? I mean, is there also a place for symbolisms that aren't, for example, framed in a narrative context or? ways of defamiliarizing that again don't have narrative structure necessarily or do you think there's something crucial about the well however you define narrative Mm -hmm. but some kind of plot driven event structured thing that is actually necessary
1: well I would never say that there isn't that power in things that aren't narrative I just don't know you know I didn't study visual art for example although there's obviously narrative visual art too but that's not my area so I don't really know but I do think
0: Within an extended description, for example, of a sewing machine in words oh. isn't necessa- you know, it doesn't necessarily have narrative structure. I see what you're um, saying. Because um, I, I, in my own work, I started with thoughts about whether fiction is different from non-fiction. Mm-hmm. And then I wondered, actually, is it the fictionality dimension that's relevant or is it narrative versus discursive? It could be any number mm-hmm. of dimensions which are actually doing... You know, well,
1: so that's a really good example. So I think, I think I define narrative pretty broadly. And I'm not a narrative scholar, I must be said. I'm a creative writer and I do public health. so there, I'm sure there's narrative scholars out there who would you know really have a problem with whatever definition I come up with. But I define it pretty broadly. And, but I think one of the essential components of narrative is connection between elements that amount to a meaning that is bigger than the element. So that takes out even the necessity to have a character. I don't know if you're familiar with Harper's Magazine and the Harper's Index. Mm-hmm. That in a lot of ways seems like a narrative mm-hmm. to me when you juxtapose just lists. Because I was saying, well, stories aren't lists of facts, except when they are. <laughs> and that Harper's Index can sometimes. Those are
0: stories. Yeah. So we almost we create narratives out all kinds of material that aren't already narrative.
1: Narratives. But there, But it's that connection of things that amounts to something.
0: So a poem that is not, you know, narratively
1: structured mm-hmm. in mind mm-hmm. generate mm-hmm. that too.
0: There's a question in a lot of what you're doing about whether people need to be taught to create good narratives or whether narrative structures come so naturally to us that actually all you need to do is allow people to do it and it'll work. I think for public
1: health practice, since I'm not teaching creative writing to creative writers, that's a whole other. I've done that. You know, I I like teaching it to people who are social scientists and public health. But in that case, because we're talking about a connection between narratives and practice, I think it's really important that they're not just reflexive because I think we are taught and we do imbibe a a lot of narratives that are not true, that are not helpful, that undermine our work in terms of ethics. And so I think that actually the deliberate sort of non Automatic version of narrative is so much more helpful to ethical practice. And I think that it can be taught. Like, you you can't be taught to be, you know, Toni Morrison, but you can certainly be taught to write more engagingly and draw on your own experience to inform what you care about and what you research. So all of that, you can get better at it. And then the getting better at it, I think, um, makes it more ethical. Because I had another writing teacher who used to talk about cliché and say, well, you know, when you write cliché in fiction, this was, again, when I was studying fiction, the reason that those words sound like they should go together is because everybody else has already put them together. And so stop that. Like, you know, take them apart. Put it, sing up something together new. And a lot of public health work or work in any kind of like social impact oh we should do this because of the. you know it's an unquestioned narrative about the world and I think it's always good to ask well what's a new way of putting those words together and how do you know that and how do you think you know it and how would that person interpret that evidence
0: yes yeah, so I suppose you're doing a kind of defamiliarization. Absolutely. creates that, but Mm -hmm. it's maybe also a useful research stance as well to just be a little bit less familiar with everything that we assumed we knew.
1: Right, because especially those things we assume
0: are often those things that are wrong. When it comes to creating good narratives or effective narratives, you've raised some possibilities in some of the stuff you've written, for example, the transportation Mm -hmm. hypothesis, Mm -hmm. like transporting the audience, the reader, Mm -hmm. into that Mm -hmm. different world, different experience versus the identification mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, hypothesis more about character and mm-hmm. feeling some kind of uh, empathic or mm-hmm. yeah, identificatory link with, mm-hmm. with them. Mm-hmm. Do you have any sense about which you think is more important in a particular context, or do you tend towards one or the other generally in thinking about the effects on audiences?
1: Well, I think, you know, we talk a lot about sort of these mechanisms of narrative transportation and identification in, in my class. I think transportation allows a kind of identification to happen. So I think in terms of bad narratives, I think there are a lot of bad narratives that are created on the identification premise. (laughs) Like I'll make a character that, you know, all young women will identify with. And because it's not complex enough, and it doesn't transport people, it ends up you know, having an opposite effect. So yeah, I think the idea of identification, as long as it's a more broad identification, like I can identify not with just demographic characteristics that are like me that somebody else, but like I identify with what it feels like to be new, or I identify with what it feels like to not live up to something that was expected of you literature and art gives us an opportunity to identify with people who otherwise seem completely unidentifiable, you know, they were so different. And so, yeah, so sometimes I think that this whole idea of identification and public health narratives can be like, well, we'll just create this picture of somebody with these characteristics. So without the transporting stuff,
0: it's not going to work. Yeah, okay, so they both come from each other. Mm -hmm. What's next for you in terms of research questions that you would really like to ask and answer?
1: So I have a little research team that we're going to be looking at um, authenticity in science communication, perceived authenticity, because what I suspect, and in practice, I teach my students that if you're able to articulate both what you know, what you care about, and why you care about if you're transparent, that it's more... A compelling, but also I'm more likely to believe you. I think that's connected to this perceived authenticity. And so I'm interested in what are the kinds of teachable components of authenticity. And again, they have to be true. I'm not interested in like pretend authenticity. I'm interested in but it doesn't have to be everything. So that's the difference I think between transparency and authenticity is I don't need to know everything about you, just the salient and relevant factors that relate to your human individual path towards this information that you're sharing with me and your own grappling with it, for example. So yeah, we're going to look at um, authenticity and the impact of perceived authenticity and trust. You know, I have a semester long course in storytelling. It's basically a course in creative nonfiction for non-writers, for public health people and social scientists and i think i'm always interested in like what's the smallest unit of instruction that will have the impact cuz you know i'd love to be able to do that in smaller versions but i feel like it in my class the students do eventually publish on a blog that we have and i think that if we didn't spend as much time as we did you know examining narratives that that we might not all feel comfortable publishing that work and so yeah so what's the mm-hmm. minimum unit of instruction to get something meaningful so that people really can go out and do something new and talk in a new way write in a new way
0: yeah I mean we're always being pushed so hard towards you know maximum impact mm-hmm. from minimum resources but right it's crucial to right. ask that question about yeah how, how little is still worth mm-hmm. doing
1: yeah and um, to start you on your way and then you could keep going doing your own research and reading and yeah, it's just, just so, initially just recognizing like what the tools are. You know, because, you know, I often begin a class by saying, you know, really good narrative writing feels inevitable, but it's so not. So just even getting there, like, yeah. wow, it completely represents tons of choices and omissions.
0: Yeah, I guess it was almost stupidly simple, but the most effective interventions are bound to be those that make the participants Want to continue, Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, just have to be self sustaining, right? Right, see the the rewards of it, yeah. Could I just conclude by asking you is there something really surprising that you've come across either in your artistic work or in your research activity or your interventional stuff? Something unexpected, something that's changed your mind about something?
1: Well, I don't know if it's changed my mind, I think I'm always surprised and just absolutely delighted and compelled and curious that when you ask people in to talk about how they got to the work that they're doing like what do you care about like where did it come from where you know that people have you know have these amazing 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 stories and that they can learn how to tell them and it's such a fun moment, my favorite part is when the student has already put together a rough draft of this story that weaves their own personal experience and questions with an issue that they've been interested with. They've never talked about, like, you know, I'm interested in, you know, rural urban health disparities. like, oh, whatever. But they never talked about that motorcycle crash victim who they scooped up off the road when they were in an EMT and like what drawing those things together and how powerful that is and how everybody has those stories. Like they're all over. You don't do public health work unless you have stories like that of something. So that I can be so surprised over and over again, kind of surprising itself.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that seems to be paralleled in the fact that you do also bring your own personal attitudes and perspectives into the academic writing you're doing which mm-hmm. is not, mm-hmm. uh, not something we should take for granted it doesn't happen as much as it should I think and I suppose the fact that you do the creative writing as mm-hmm. well in a different way makes it more important and perhaps a little easier for you to do it than mm-hmm. some other people might find mm-hmm. it
1: uh, but once but, they do I mean that's the yeah. other thing is like once they do it I don't know if they go on and write these things forever but um boy, they really produce great work and also it's nice to be sitting with someone and together you hear that bell. You're like, oh! One of my students, we were just talking about her story, and we, we realized that broadly there were a lot of different issues, but there was a theme that linked it all together. And so you're looking always for, what is that thing that pulls it all together? And in her case, it was sisterhood. And I said, well, you know, what if you actually start your narrative with the Merriam-Webster definition of sisterhood. And I pulled it up, and I was like, because look, the first one was like, you know, women, biologically related, da-da-da. And the second one was like a religious order. And the third was joined through a shared trauma or experience. And all of those were kind of relevant. And I said, well, you could bring... But what I'm struggling with is, do you put it at the beginning, or do you put it at the end? And we were sort of talking, and then we were like, oh, you put one and two at the beginning, and then you circle back to it. And the third one is at the end. And we were both like, oh! you know, fanning ourselves, like in the bells ringing. And,
0: you know, that's such a fun process. Yeah, it's so easy to forget in the humanities that collaboration can be like that. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> or never to sort of have known it because you yeah. just always sat in the library on your own. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. It's fun. Thank you for listening to this episode of Textual Therapies. You can see the accompanying notes and further reading suggestions for this episode and explore other episodes and get in touch to suggest ideas for future episodes on my website at Trishanko.com. What I really hope that the series will do is to crystallise existing knowledge and to start conversations. So if anything we've talked about connects up with your work or with your experiences more widely, please do get in touch with either me or Lisa. Thank you.